You're back with the conversation on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. We all know that the harbors are Hawaii's lifeline, a reality that many Hawaii residents were reminded of in the early days of the pandemic. Today, we hear part of a conversation with Matthew Cox, CEO of Matson Navigation, about the company's plan to reinvigorate its fleet. It involves spending a billion dollars to add four new ships. The Lurleen is the third in line and is the fastest and largest vessel in the company's long history. The Matsonia is the fourth and is expected to go into service next week. Captain William Matson named his daughter after the first ship bearing the name Lurleen, and the shipping line has added another vessel to take on the name. Previous vessels included a luxury passenger liner, but this new container ship stretches out over three football fields and features its own ramp and has a greener footprint all around. It's an exciting time for Matson. Uh, there are significant efficiencies that are being built into this fleet renewal. The biggest uh, benefit to us is that because these ships are bigger and faster, we're able to operate with one fewer fleet unit. So we're going to go from a 10-ship deployment to a 9-ship deployment. That will allow us to cover the same amount of cargo that's required into the islands every week with one less ship. And, and if you were operating a power plant or a utility, it'd be like operating the same utility with one less uh, plant. So there's efficiencies that are built into it. Uh, it. It lowers our emissions impact and our environmental footprint. These ships have got all the latest technologies for safety and environmental uh, compliance and they're just beautiful ships. They're fast, they're big, and we're excited about it. They're much more efficient, they consume less fuel, they're able to burn different kinds of fuel. The fuel tanks are in places between the cargo holds, so if the, God forbid, the we should strike the bottom of the ship or not, there's no fuel going into the water. Uh, they have um, emission cleaning systems, they have ballast water, which is used to balance the ship. Uh, the ballast water is treated uh, again, all around minimizing the environmental impact of the ships. The generators aboard the ship are EPA Tier 3 compliant, which means they're the most efficient engines that are basically in the world today. And so it's, uh, it's, it's exciting. And so how does this ship compare? Uh, how does it stack up to other ships built in other countries? So the, the ships that are built for, for Matson were built specifically for the Hawaii trade. And so I would say that the ships are less expensive to be built in uh, overseas and foreign countries. The ships that we build are built to operate for 40 years. So the strength of the steel, the structural elements, these are all built in such a way to have a very long life. And so, um, and the quality and care that goes into this, U.S. shipyards are more expensive than international shipbuilding facilities, but no one builds a better ship in the world than the United States shipyards. One of our goals and objectives as a company is to meet or exceed all environmental standards. And we have a long tradition of doing that. Um, on January 1 of this year, there, the IMO, which is the International Maritime Association, which is a subset of the United Nations globally, um, changed the fuel requirements um, that just came into effect. And on January 1, you can't burn fuels that have more than 0.5% sulfur. And before, you could burn up to 3.5% sulfur in, in the bunker fuel or the, the fuel that we use to operate these engines. And so that sounds like a small difference, but sulfur is a natural lubricant. And so changing the chemical composition of the fuel to meet very worthy environmental standards 
uh, creates design changes, engine changes, lubricant changes, and there's a lot of technology that goes beyond uh, into that change. So part of this fleet investment relates to making sure we were staying current with uh, more stringent environmental standards that continue to evolve. And so the, the other benefit is, you know, it's thought worldwide that thousands, tens of thousands of people die each year who are at risk for respiratory illnesses and those kinds of things. So the idea of these new fuels were to minimize the amount of deaths that, uh, that occur annually as a result of uh, sulfur in the, uh, in the exhaust stacks of vessels. So it's a cleaner, greener ship. It's a cleaner, greener ship, yeah. And so can you talk about the capability of burning liquid natural gas? Yeah, so the, the vessel, these vessels were designed to eventually be converted to LNG. And what we did at the time that we spec the ship was that we built the ship bigger than it needed to be so that we could accommodate two very large LNG uh, containers that have not yet been put aboard the vessel. We built the engine, or we selected the engine, that would be able to burn that type of fuel. So this vessel is ready to be converted to LNG, but to us what was less clear at the time was, is there a commercial source of LNG on the west coast in a port location for which we could use it as a fuel supply? And up to this point in time, there is no LNG facility or a LNG facility on the coast that could discharge and move uh, via barge or something that could fuel our ships. And when that occurs, we're going to be taking a hard look at converting these vessels, who were specifically designed to be converted to LNG, when that fuel becomes available on the west coast. So when that happens, we'll be ready. We're on a journey, which is what's expected of us, to continue to find ways in which to reduce our environmental footprint. But we are definitely lowering the amount of CO2 that we're putting into the air, and we feel like it's our and every other company's obligation to do that. There's been a lot of talk about the harbor modernization plan. Can you uh, talk about how this works with the cranes? So uh, the nice part here uh, with the new vessel, as you can see right behind me, uh, the three brand new cranes. Those cranes were needed because the cranes that are just beyond them, the other three, are too uh, short and don't reach out far enough to be able to handle and pick up and unload cargo on the four new vessels. And so we needed, as part of a, uh, a group investment, to be able to uh, produce or work with new cranes uh, and have them installed in order to make full use of this vessel. Our older vessels can still use, in fact, you'll see just a vessel in front of this one uh, that are, that's our previous generation of vessels. And you can see that uh, the, the booms and the crane height is a little bit lower. Um, and so part of this is meant to work together. These cranes, um, we've upgraded our electric system. These are very efficient uh, crane hoists uh, that reduce the amount of um, energy load. Uh, they also, during the discharge of the vessels, like an electric car, generate electricity as they're bringing down the containers and putting that into a battery system that will again reduce the amount of, of electricity that we consume as part of the loading and unloading process. It's like a braking on a Tesla. You're basically producing more battery energy. It's the same concept with these cranes. The FAA had to step in, right? I mean, aren't they having to change flight patterns because of the larger cranes? Yeah, so we, we work closely with the state and with DOT and the FAA to make sure that we, we are not in the flight path. So FAA is concerned that if a plane took off and it was only on one engine, would it have adequate clear way to be able to avoid the cranes? And so 
we work very carefully with them. They're in the process of re relocating a, an older radio tower uh, that's in place to be able to create adequate pathways for, for a plane if it were to get into trouble from not uh, hitting the crane uh, or having plenty of room to avoid the cranes. It's really construction activity that moves the needle for us. So the basic replenishment uh, for the consumers here in Hawaii uh, to meet tourist demand and the military has been relatively flat. We've seen a healthy but steady construction environment. So in a more robust construction environment, we would expect to see more volume. So our expectation in the future is we'll see uh, the economy here is still growing and that's terrific. Uh, it hasn't translated into significant additional freight volumes, but when we build our fleet and our networks, we're building it for the next 30 and 40 years. And so we wanted to build these ships with plenty of capacity to grow, so as the island economy grows over time, we're able to accommodate that growth when it occurs. You've been hearing from Matson CEO, Matthew Cox. If the name Lurleen is familiar, you may know it as the name of a street in the Manolani Heights neighborhood on Oahu in a nod to the Hawaii shipping industry. But it was also the name of the daughter of shipping magnate Captain William Matson, who secured Filoli Gardens for all to enjoy. We visited there recently and sat down with CEO Karen Newport to talk about the history of the formal Golden Age garden that Lurleen Matson Roth helped develop on the 647-acre site. The Woodside, California property was home to two prominent families, William Bourne, who made his money during the gold rush, and William and Lurleen Matson Roth of the Matson Shipping Company. Filoli Estate in Woodside, California, is um, is a 100-year-old estate that was first built by the Bourne family, William Bowers Bourne, and he was the um, part of the gold mining to begin with and then became um, part of Spring Valley Water. So he was associated with water and utilities and public utilities and things like that. So he built the house with his wife um, and in 1917 and then in 1937 the um, Roth family, who was part of the Matson family, purchased the home and they purchased it from the Bournes, fully furnished. Um, they actually already had a home in Woodside, the Why Worry Farm. Um, but they wanted they wanted a home for for their family and for entertaining, um, and really they wanted a ballroom for their daughter's debut ball. They had twin daughters, Lurleen and Brennis, were their twin daughters. So they had their debut ball in the ballroom here at Filoli. So the Matson line, I think everybody knows the story about the Matson line and um, and how that that made the connection really between San Francisco and Hawaii. Um, but the Roth family had a home in Hawaii as well, and and that connection was really strong. But they uh, they really established that connection between San Francisco and Hawaii and had a love for both places. And and I think you saw that through um, their homes both here and in Hawaii. So. It was, um, it was something that, that came through a lot. And in fact, we just had our first gala last year, and our theme for that gala, fundraising gala, was Pacific Paradise in honor of the Hawaiian connection. And we had a, a Hawaiian chef who helped the, with the food for that from Liho Liho Yacht Club. So we're still celebrating the connection to the islands. And so uh, talk about the challenges of having a house museum, because this was really a home for two families, uh, and it, it, it's now a public garden, right. uh, but it's also a museum. Yes. 
So, so in 1975, the Roth family generously gave the house and the gardens to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And at that time, then, it was opened as a house museum. So really, what I love about this estate is that it has been in continuous operation for over 100 years now. And, and that isn't typical. Usually, a house museum falls into disrepair and um, goes through many hands, and then it becomes a house museum, and, and then people have to revive it. But because it was this continuum, um, because the Roths had the foresight to see that you know it needed to be held in public trust, um, we were able to, we being Philoli Center, the nonprofit, pick up and just begin operating that as as a house museum and and garden. We're, we're probably better known as a public garden, which is a great. Um, a, that's really greatly attributed to Lurleen Roth, who had an eye for gardening and really developed the gardens during her time. And that's really continued. So the, you know, the garden continued to um, evolve and grow when, you know, we have climate change, so we have to think about what we're planting. So, you know, that historic landscape evolves over time. And then the house has evolved as well. The house was given to the trust empty. And so over time, there were many, many different things considered, you know, should it be a bed and breakfast? Should it, you know, should it be many things? But it, it became a house museum. And so over that time, we've been recollecting items back into our collection to represent both eras because, again, the Roth family purchased it furnished. So there was a great history of, we have photos from both families that the rooms are virtually identical. So um, the Roths kept a lot of the look and feel of the rooms and just added their own touches, especially from their world travels. And that their personal fingerprint was on it, but from uh, our perspective, it's really great because we can just take those pictures from the past and work through recreating the rooms. And you have uh, an exhibit uh, currently, Nests, I think, yes. as we were driving up, we saw the uh, wonderful the, the forms out in the, right. the gardens up front. Right, the floating nests, right. So um, so as uh, Filoli has, you know, we're a, we're a nonprofit, we developed a strategic plan last year for the next five years and really realized that we need to be relevant for a current audience and we need to find ways to connect to a current audience. And one of those ways that, that we thought of is by telling more stories. You know, we tell great stories about the Bourne family and the Roth family, but let's tell the stories about the other people who created home here at Filoli and the people who really built Filoli. So we've been digging through the archives and, and really pulling out the stories of the um, of the different people who worked at Filoli over the years and, um, and telling those stories in a different way. And then you mentioned the actual nests. We also have an exhibition of, of nests on the property that are artistic nests inspired by nature. And, and really we wanted to reflect the, the people, plants, and animals who have called Filoli home. So who created home here? And at any given time, we learned there could have been four or five or six languages spoken at Filoli. It was actually a very diverse group of people that lived and worked here together. You had, I think, wonderful imagery uh, on the wall. I think there were a couple of gals from Japan. There were some from Europe. The immigrant stories. Right, exactly. And that's and that's really, you know, we, we also have an art exhibition in our visitor center that's about women and birds and migration. You know, how, how we've all, in some ways, migrated from different places. I moved here from North Carolina. So, <laughs> you know, even, even if it isn't from around the world, everyone kind of has an, a, a migration story, if not an immigration story. But 
we have some pretty compelling immigration stories in our history. People came from different parts of the world just for these jobs. We had a Japanese butler. We had a Chinese, several Chinese cooks and chefs. And and it, it was really, you know, very diverse. We had Italian and Hungarian gardeners. So people from, from all over the world working together and, you know, again, speaking different languages and, you know, really working out how, how to work together through that. And not only do we have the house and gardens and 125 acres that's owned by the National Trust, the Filoli Center owns an additional 500 acres. So we have we have a, a lot of land that's part of the original estate, and 16 acres of it is in formal gardens, English style, mostly gardens, and and that was really you know it was originally the born vision structurally. But, but it was the Mrs. Roth who came in and added her wonderful touches. Um, for example, um, we have an incredible camellia collection, and that's really you know attributable to her. She really loved camellias and, and brought them in. And, and so when she was thinking about how to turn this over you know, to the next owner, the next generation, the people who wanted to buy it had different, different ideas about it. And, and she really couldn't imagine not inviting people to come in and see the garden because she had been doing that for years. She invited people to come to tea in the afternoon. In fact, I, I believe the story is there was almost an open invitation to come for tea in the afternoon and see the gardens. And she had, you know, w wonderful parties here. You know, it was really a place that was for other people. You know, she really wanted other people to enjoy it. And and so by bringing in the National Trust, she was able to continue that vision. Uh, the foundation here has also opened up the trails. I think there's a, a number of tours that you can can take, you know, with, you know, just you've got the trails and the preserve and you've got, you've got the gardens and then you have the historic home. So a lot of different themes going on. And we're, we're even adding more to that. But in the past few years, we've, we've opened up um, what we call the estate trail. We have a nature center and, and we consider that, you know, 500 ish acres of nature preserve. And, and the Nature Center previously was really used for just school groups, and we thought everybody would love this. So we've, we've opened it up. We, do, we have private hikes where you can go into kind of the secret back areas of, of the estate. Um, we have several miles of trails back there. Um, we also do school programs, and, and I think that's important, both in the Nature Preserve, but also in the house and in the garden. So our school programs are able to access all of these different places as well as part of being being um, open and available for the public. And, and we're finding more and more ways to do that too. And we have a wonderful orchard and we're doing more events in our orchard. And we're also producing, finding ways to produce more out of our orchard. The orchard was originally there as a cider orchard for the family. And, and so this year we are for the first time producing hard cider that we'll have available. We've always produced apple butters and jams and, and had that available from, from the orchard. So, you know, having people access that more and learn about, you know, the, both the history of it, but how it's still relevant in production today. So there's, there's thing, there are things happening all the time now and year round, and it's not just the garden and it's not just events, it's in the house. And that's part of our strategic plan is just to keep things fresh and, and active and alive and interesting. That was Filoli CEO Karen Newport. The Nest exhibit at Filoli runs through November. And if you were wondering about the name Filoli, well, its roots are with the slogan, fight for a just cause, love your fellow man, and live a good life. We'll be exploring more of the Hawaii stories with curator Julie Bly-DeVere, and we plan to talk with one of the many Lurleens of the Matson family.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the Homa Shop offering art-inspired gift ideas for the holidays. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. It's just not the holidays without the Nutcracker, and so Hawaii Public Radio presents a gift to the community. Ballet Hawaii's The Nutcracker with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, set in the 1858 Kingdom of Hawaii, incorporating a blend of new and previously recorded productions from years past. Watch it December 25th at 7 p.m. on KITV Channel 4. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs in finance, marketing, and information systems. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. continue exploring a California public garden with Hawaii Maritime Ties. The Matson name has dominated shipping in the Pacific. You see the name emblazoned on shipping containers across the state. But the Matson twin granddaughters, Lurleen and Brennis, came out in society in the Bay Area and were launched like luxury liners, according to the newspapers at the time. Curator Julie Blythe DeVere recounts the Hawaii history and the impact of World War II uh, the Matson family did not escape the impact of the internment camps and the Chinese Exclusion Act. The Philoli Estate and Public Gardens were started first by William Bourne and then uh, William and Lurleen Matson Roth. Both families had maritime connections, but of course, the Roth family had the Matson Hawaii connection most. So her father. Captain William Madsen um, had really started a lot of transportation back and forth between Hilo and San Francisco. And he started that in, um, the eight, in 1882 with the Emma Claudina, was a little schooner that he started taking back and forth when it was still the kingdom of Hawaii. He was working and bringing supplies from the mainland and then bringing back things like coconut and native woods. He was trying to make a go of railroad ties out of them here and filling his hold back up. He was also bringing back a lot of sugar and sandalwood and doing that back and forth. And then he just kind of kept increasing the size of his ships. Um, it became a 400-ton brigantine next, the Lurleen, the first Lurleen. But he started going back and forth. And over time, especially after the annex of the kingdom, sugar production was doubling and he was bringing more sugar back and forth to the mainland. And then he got really involved in Honolulu Oil, Consolidated Oil Company. He was very involved in Honolulu Plantation um, and about a half dozen other island kind of trade and, and merchants. And so he had a lot of different kind of fingers into the merchant area there. Um, back and forth. And so their family kind of continued to grow and expand over time. So he was the first one to have an electrified ship with cold storage, taking things back and forth to Hilo. 
And then he was the first to have um, steam, and, to, and then he was really involved with the oil line going back and forth, especially one that uh, was bringing the oil fields of California all the way to the Pacific coast. There was a 118 mile long um, pipeline that he helped put in. And so as, as that trade grew, Matson seemed to always be there. And after Lurleen's father, um, her husband, who was born in Honolulu, William Roth himself was born when it was still the kingdom of Hawaii. And he, he, was, he came out to the mainland to Oakland and then later to Stanford University for his education. But then he went back um, to Hawaii and worked as a bank teller and then a sugar broker and then meets and falls in love with Lurleen when she's visiting the islands with her family. And she went back and forth almost every year you know, with her father and her mother. And he ends up kind of working for Madsen, and under his leadership, especially in the 20s into the 40s, that's when you have the, the White Line cruise ship going in and really developing Waikiki. Um, he then thought, well, I have this beautiful cruise ship, and it's ending in Waikiki, which he remembers when you saw 10 people on the beach, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he said, well, all of these tourists now have nowhere that they can stay on the island. And so that was when he developed the hotels, um, the Royal Hawaiian, the Surf Rider, the Princess Kalalani, like all of those were under his leadership. And then they really move into containerization and shipping. And so maritime trade and especially a connection to the islands has always been important to them and continues, I think, to be a part of their history. We just recently had one of Lurleen Roth's grandchildren here visiting and Artie, you know, Arthur Grant, he plays the ukulele beautifully and he sings love songs on it that he learned from his grandparents, you know, and so there was even that cultural kind of tradition and they, they still kind of greet family during important events with flower lay and a lot of that has carried through and it's still important to them, you can tell. I was reading somewhere on the, one of the oral histories that was published that Lurleen used to, to gather the flowers in the morning and then bring them back for the arrangements in the house and that they would also display them in the calabashes downstairs. She had an amazing collection of calabash and we're really lucky that she left those to us and that they remain here in our collection. And we of course kind of treasure them and they go into storage for a little bit to have time to rest and then come back out. Um, and so they're still here. I love that at a time when she kind of needed a little bit of self-care and love, Lurleen went back to Hawaii. Uh, she built her own estate right next to the Mauna Kea Resort. She built that beautiful 9.7, you know, six acre estate. And that after she lost her husband as a recent widow, that was really where she kind of needed a little bit of time for herself. I, I love those pictures of her, you know, when she's visiting the island, especially in her later years. She was in her 80s. She developed this beautiful home. She worked with, you know, an architect locally. It was 10 steps to the water's edge. Big, expansive walls, views to really kind of soak in the island, right there next to, like, Lawrence Rockefeller's beautiful estate that he had built, right? That she wanted to be there and that 
that place that had been so important to her throughout her childhood was a place where she could kind of have a little bit of a balm for the soul. When I was here last, you had the mats and menus up on display. I don't know if that's part of a permanent thing or if you rotate things in and out. Yeah, for many years, we used to have them up in the kitchen. Um, right now, they're in the visitor center in a display case. We have two in there in the gallery, and one is the Bourne family history, and the other is the Roth family history. And it's it's just kind of soaked into the, the view that you take in, that it's immediately the Pacific was important, the tropical, floral. Um, there isn't a family picture during parties that you don't see tropical flowers that were specifically brought to the mainland for events happening here. Um, even if it was giant displays of beautiful orchids and things being brought in specifically for like the Twins debut party, um, you just kind of instantly see that that Pacific Island connection was so important for the family. Um, and again, even in those family photos, you often see Lurleen and Bill wearing flower lay surrounded by their children here in California. So it's still important. I saw one of the pictures in the showcase uh, has a horse draped in lay mm -hmm. <laughs> because they used to raise horses here on the property. Yeah, Mrs. Roth is, is perhaps most well known here locally for her incredible horse breeding facility that she had here for many years. Their other estate was the Waiwuri Farm, which was also here in Woodside. And it's said that when she moved to Filoli, she brought just the broodmares with her. So maybe only 50. <laughs> but she had, um, she competed almost every year except for during the war years when she was running the Red Cross. She was president of the local chapter. And uh, her horses won every accolade and every award that they could nationally, internationally. And she was often out there in the ring herself. Um, horses have continued to be really important. And so when you visit the property here, you see the green fences um, all over the property that were all their different paddocks. But yeah, they would do these big, beautiful flower lays that would go up over you know, their, their neck. And then she would always present them with a vanilla ice cream cone out in the middle of the ring, she would feed them one. And you can see they're all perked up and so excited that they're gonna get a treat um, because they know that they did well. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, anything else you can share? I know Kara uh, uh, had mentioned that uh, they had, I think she had a Japanese butler, I mm -hmm. think. And one of the stories that I read was, I think it was learning, I think had, had to drive him down to one of the internment camps in the city during the war. That was kind of a sensitive issue. Yeah, that's what's amazing about telling these new stories in the house is it does allow us the opportunity to tell a lot of new stories in the house. And one of them um, is about Tachiki Taga. And the family, as is the case, you always call your butler by their last name. So wh whether it was Sidney Woods and he was Woods during the Bourne era or um, Taga during the Roth era, um, he was one of the butlers here, and he had worked for over 25 years at the time of Japanese internment starting here um, on the mainland. And it was heartbreaking, you know, and it's so hard. And um, she remembers having to take him and his wife and their American-born daughter. She was, you know, born and raised here in San Francisco on the peninsula um, and going into internment and then the family went and picked them up at the end and they continued um, to work for the family until their retirement years. We also, with our Chinese cook, we have the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is so another difficult part of California history here. 
Um, we have a lecture series coming up later this summer that's uh, connected to NEST. We're bringing in other local historians who specialize in internment in the Chinese Exclusion Act um, so that I can borrow their expertise and make sure that we're really giving the context as to what those difficult periods of history here in California were and how they intimately affected the people that called Philoli home. You know, we, we had, we have stories from some of our other staff that talk about, you know, what it was like to be here in, in this area, in parts of San Francisco, in the 20s, in the 30s, how difficult that could be for them at the time. Um, and so Philoli has always been this diverse group of people but that didn't make it always easy for everybody, especially outside of the acreage here. So just getting a chance to tell those new stories, um, whether they're, they're good stories, um, ones that give us joy, or ones that remind us why we never need to recreate or relive those moments, learn from our past. Julie Blythe-Devere said she has memories of sitting down with the Matson twins who died a few years ago at ages 96 and 97. The curator says she believes the Filoli Gardens and historic home still holds many Hawaii stories to share in its future. The twins' mother, Lurleen Matson Roth, died in 1985, one day after her 95th birthday. And it was back in 1975 that she donated the Filoli estate to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And here's a fun fact for you. If you remember the television series Dynasty, well, the exterior of Filoli was used as the Carrington Mansion. The Lurleen made its maiden voyage to Hawaii in January of this year. Back in 2018, Matson christened the largest combination container and cargo roll-on, roll-off ship ever built in the U.S. in San Diego. Constance Lau, who sits on Matson's board of directors, had the honor of christening the Lurleen. For Matson, I christen thee Lurleen. May Kea bless this ship and all who sail on her. Lurleen, an iconic name in the shipping line's long history. It goes back to Captain William Matson's first ship, built in 1887. This newest vessel will be the sixth. We talked to Captain Matson's great-granddaughter, who carries the Lurleen name, the fifth Lurleen in her family. Lurleen Menzies was present for the ship's christening in San Diego. She talked with us about the Matson-Hawaii connection to the Filoli Estate and Gardens, which was her great-grandparents' home in Woodside, California. The property is now a public garden. It was really thrilling. I'd never been to a christening before, and it was just so much fanfare and patriotism and uh, the community coming together to send off this big ship. It was really fun. It was a lot of fun. So tell us about some of the Matson family history because uh, we've just done a couple of stories about the gardens and the home. Our family has 
great connections to Hawaii. And it starts back with my great-grandfather, Captain Madsen, who started the sailing route trade between San Francisco and Hilo. And his first brigantine was the Lurleen. And on that ship, he met my great-grandmother, who was traveling over to be a teacher at one of the ranches over there in Hilo. Um, So they met in Hawaii. And then, as you know, with Captain Matson, you know, he started the Matson navigation line and the cargo travel from San Francisco to Hilo. And then you go on to my grandfather, William Roth, who was born in uh, Hawaii when it was a kingdom, a kingdom of Hawaii. That was in 1880. And he met my grandmother, Lurleen Matson Roth, in Hawaii. And they married. He then joined Matson Navigation Lines and extended the Matson name as far as going into luxury ships, luxury liners. They were the white ships. And then he also built several hotels on Waikiki, one of them being the Royal Hawaiian, which really started the tourism in in Waikiki. So between the four of them, um, I think they spent half of their life in Hawaii. And when they weren't in Hawaii, they were always wanting to have links with Hawaii, and you do see that in the house in Filoli, which is, they purchased that in 1937. This is William and Lurleen Roth. The, the thing that was lovely about it is that even though it was a large Georgian country house, I guess it's 36,000 square feet, it was not imposing. My grandmother and grandfather just made it very graceful and cheerful. And I'd have to say a lot of it was the influence of um, their life in Hawaii and what they brought into the house. The upstairs-downstairs aspect was very, very relevant. We as grandchildren really had the run of the house, and we went everywhere and loved to go into the help swing and go back there and play poker with them (laughs) (laughs) or, you know, go and sneak cookies in the kitchen from the wonderful Chinese cook that was there for years. So it was really, uh, it was very special. The things that I, my impressions, was really the the sounds of the songbirds. My grandmother had a rather large collection of rare birds from Africa. She had a a shama. She had songbirds. And she also had a minor bird that was in her upstairs bedroom with her, very close to her. And that bird, for instance, mimicked everything that my grandmother said, including whistles to the dogs and calling out to the kids and whatever. And so... There was a lot of a lot of trickery there, where there'd be this bird sounding just like my grandmother, yelling out commands. <laughs> Literally, really get over funny. here! <laughs> and people would come running. But the the thing that as you walk through the house was that there was a great abundance of flowers that she always arranged weekly, and they came out of her garden. 
but they also came out of her greenhouse because she loves cymbidiums and dendrobiums, orchids. So orchids and also carnations and roses were predominantly in the house, and she loved lays. And as you know, there's orchids and carnations, and, and the thing that was really interesting to me as a child is the carnations that she grew in the cut garden they had a cinnamon scent to them. Normally when you purchase carnations, they have no smell at all. But when they're freshly cut, they have this delicious cinnamon scent to it, which I just loved. Along with the, you know, the songbirds, the finches, there were birds in many rooms. So as you walked through the house, you had this tropical scent that you were in. It it was lovely. When I was there at the home at Filoli Gardens, they had uh, lots of the original mats and menus up in the kitchen. I know they're redoing the kitchen now. But what's your hope as far as showcasing those ties at, at the estate? That is something that, that I I would love. I'd love to have a little bit of a continuity there in the house so that the visitors can understand the, the strong connection of Filoli and that family story of Filoli and Hawaii because it was really because of the successes of my great-grandfather and my grandfather that allowed the family to purchase Filoli in 1937, and, and we're very proud of that. Thank you for sharing your family stories with us. Oh, you're, you're more than welcome, and thank you for the opportunity. Since Lurleen Menzies' great-grandparents met on the first Lurleen, there have been many shipboard romances. We will share one of those stories right after a short break. Lurleen. Before it was a street name on Wilhelmina Rise, it was a Matson ship, actually one of six with that name. In a nod to Matson's history in the islands, we bring you a tale from a time when the Lurleen was a cruise liner. We share a charming story of a shipboard romance and the promise to name a daughter after the vessel where her parents first met. We talked to Lurleen McGregor, who's descended from a Scottish sea captain. Her roots include Chinese, German, and Native Hawaiian. McGregor is an independent producer who also does work with the University of Hawaii Center for Oral History. She recalled she thought a recording of her mother's oral history was lost because of server issues. Her mother's memory has faded now due to old-age dementia, so Lurleen was thrilled to learn recently that the recording survived. We listened to her mother recounting the story, a recent high school graduate traveling to the islands with her friends, and a chance encounter with a young Harvard graduate. Meet the product of that union, Lurleen McGregor. I did this in 2001 at Olelo. We were doing a Halia Aloha series of having community members come in and with the Center for Oral History from the UH under Warren Nishimoto at that point, and then with our production facilities at Olelo, we were training people to do oral interviews with, you know, kupuna primarily, 
Uh, most people did them of family members, but people did them of, you know, just older people they knew who had interesting stories. And so I thought I would do one of my mom in, again, 2001. So at that point, she would have been 77 years old. We did the interview and, you know, edited it down and made the little piece, a little six or seven minute piece, and, and then they were all strung together and aired on the station. And I had completely lost um, the tape and, you know, everything from it until recently when um, somebody from Olelo contacted the Center for Oral History and said, you know, we want to work with you because we have these old programs. So there were about nine episodes, each of them an hour plus long, you know, of all these four to six minute interviews. My mother's was in there. I thought it was lost and gone forever. So they found it and they sent it to me and I played it. And it was, you know, such a gift really to see my mother back when she was 77 years old and fully coherent and her memory completely there and telling the story in a little more detail, I think, than maybe she ever told me about, you know, going to first class and hanging out with my dad and this and that. And, and even, you know, I, I don't recall her ever talking about what they did when they got here, you know, that he took her up to Pali and um, Tantlis and Kaneohe. And it was really cool to hear stuff. We have a snippet of it, so let's take a listen. My name is Madeline McGregor. My maiden name was Madeline Flover, but I am known out here as Lynn because Madeline is too hard a name to pronounce properly. I lived in Indianapolis for quite a few years and then moved east to Boston from where I came out here on a tour with a, a group of young ladies in 1940 when I had graduated from high school. Now in those days, young women didn't go traveling around by themselves very often, but my mother decided she wanted to give me something so beautiful for a graduation present that she let me come on this tour. Now there were maybe about 10 of us young women coming out with the tour guide. And we stopped at places along the, along the way, and then we got on the ship which was named Lurleen, and we came out here. And that was an exciting moment. It took about five and a half days, and uh, about two days out to sea, the tour guide got a message. She wanted somebody who would have a blind date with one of the guys up in the, f in the first class. So none of my friends wanted to go, and I was the only fool. I guess I was too young to know any better, so I accepted, and it was a ball. We, we did, I was taken up to first class. We were done in the, in the second class as a group, and I got to do things up in first class and go around with the group that was up there. Uh, my friend had just graduated from Harvard Law School and was anxious to get home and have his things, so he started out with me. Well, we, we landed. We got, uh, our group got together and we went out to the Moana Hotel. I love that place. Oh, it was so beautiful then, where you could lie out under the big banyan tree or you could sit on tables underneath it. And uh, we did that. Then the uh, tour guide let me go out with this masculine, this male group. So I was never with the tour anymore after that. I don't know really what they did, but I know what I did was simply terrific. I went out uh, uh, to a real bona fide Hawaiian luau, 
And that was my first experience with the taste of poi. And most people who first taste poi don't like it, but I loved it right from the beginning. And I never can get enough of it. But the 10 days went by in a hurry that we were supposed to be here. And so before I left, he asked me to marry him. And I said, well, hey, wait a minute. I want to go to college. I want to finish college before I get married. He said, okay, well, you get to college, you connect with me, and we'll, we'll go ahead and get married. So that was kind of an exciting way to end this beautiful trip. My husband was Scotch, Chinese, and Hawaiian. And my background is all German. And, and people said, you're going to have Scotch-German kids. You better watch out. That's going to be horrible. And you're not going to be very happy with the, the temperament and all. But I loved him. That's just a terrific story, a really yeah. neat love story. <laughs> What did you think when, when, when you heard that again? When I heard her tell the story, I thought it was a beautiful love story. You know, it was something that, I mean, I remember growing up, they, them telling me that they named me after the ship because that's where they met. But I, I don't remember the color and, you know, that kind of detail. And it was really heartwarming to hear that. It just really is a sweet story for me. I, I never got to sail on the Lurleen, which I was very disappointed about. I got to go on a couple times when people were coming and going. But I've always just kind of tracked the history. You know, it got sold, and then they renamed, I think, some inner island bar one of their inner island barges. So they've kept the name alive, which, you know, I was very happy to see. And now, you know, of course, they've built a new ship with that name. So I really like the fact that it's tied to this period of Hawaiian history that ties it, you know, to my parents in that era of history where, you know, they met. This was the, pretty much the only, the primary mode of transportation to get to Hawaii. So it really speaks to a, a time in our past. Yeah, a wonderful time. I don't know if they, they call it but the, the, the golden age, right? I mean, yeah. when you think of how Matson started with the navigation company and then built the hotels to bring in the tourists, mm -hmm. You know, and then their part in the uh, in the war. In the war, yeah, they st they carried troops, and um, I remember my mom saying that when she came back the second time during the war, and I, I think that was after she got married, um, the war had started, and so she came back on the ship to come to Honolulu, and the ship zigzagged the whole way just to throw the enemy off, I guess, and then they used it as a transport ship for troops. I feel very connected. I, I mean, for me, my safe place, kind of. My um, place that I prefer to be is the ocean. Um, I was very fortunate to be part of the Malama Honua Hokulea trip. I was also very fortunate more recently to be on a, a sailing cargo ship called the Kwai that goes from Honolulu down to Kiribati, some, the couple of the line islands, and then on to the northern Cooks, which are accessible pretty much only by several days ship travel. So they see outsiders very infrequently. They're not tourist destinations. You know, it's just, it's always so special for me to be on the ocean, to be on a ship that is just so close to the ocean and out there. I never get tired of it. Learning, your, your <laughs> name was meant to be. <laughs> but thanks so much. Oh, you're very welcome. That was Lurleen McGregor, whose parents named her after the ship they met on in the 1940s. 
That wraps our program dedicated to exploring the Matson family and shipping line from past to present. And full disclosure, Matson is an underwriter of HPR. If you have an idea for a program or want to give us feedback, call 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, and you can find us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back on Monday with the conversation. Thank you.